Amen. Thank you, Brother Charles. Church, our theme for the year is what? Church matters. And so if church matters, then doesn't it make sense that we need to scripturally deal with what matters within the church? So what we're doing is we're going verse by verse through God's word. Why? Because we need the whole counsel of God. And so the Lord has led us this year and probably for part of next year to to look at the book of 1 Corinthians together as we deal with matters of the church and the fact that church matters. So, so far we've uh, addressed chapters 1 through 6 and we've seen a couple of things. In the first couple of chapters, Paul addressed what? He addressed unnecessary division within the church. And so he dealt with some of the different cliques and some of the groups and how the people were uh, dividing themselves in an unbiblical, unscriptural way. And so in the first couple of chapters, Paul dealt with unnecessary division. In the last couple of chapters that we looked at, Paul dealt with very necessary discipline. Because in this church here, there was a lot of sin, or on amok, out of control. And Paul, he had to deal with some things to set some things in order in this church. And so you'll remember through our studies how Paul dealt with discipline within the church. But now as we get into chapter 7, Paul's going to be transitioning. He's dealt with divisions. He's dealt with discipline. And now Paul is going to begin dealing with some practical difficulties that this church was trying to navigate. You'll notice at the beginning of verse uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote to me. In other words, in this section, really chapter 7 through 10, Paul is going to be addressing some specific questions that the church at Corinth had sent to him. It was like, if you would, their very own question and answer session. We do that once a year here at Harvest, and uh, Paul gave three chapters here in the book of Corinthians to questions and answers. And he's going to deal with matters of marriage, uh, matters of meats, and when we talk about meats, he's going to be dealing with the concept of Christian liberty, and then he's going to be dealing with matters of ministry, answering specific questions that this church had as they tried to navigate uh, some difficulties in following Christ. You know, we find the reality is that for all of us, sin has made some things unnecessarily complicated and difficult. But what we're going to find as we look at God's word is this. God is bigger than our confusion. God can handle our questions about life. God is not fearful of the hard things. God's not sitting up in heaven going, boy, I hope they don't ask about such and such. I never considered how that might work. God's not fearful of your questions. He's not fearful of the hard things. And here's what we're going to find, and this gives me great hope, is that when you and I come with open eyes and open ears to God's word, and we come with humble hearts, we can always find principles and precepts that allow us to walk wisely in a God-honoring way. I might not always like what God says. I might not always understand why God said it. But the essence of faith is that if God said it, I'm going to choose to trust and obey it. Period. Why? Because the Bible is our standard. 
For the Christian and for this church, the Bible is the standard. Not the culture. Church, the culture is not our standard. Not the culture. Not our feelings, how we feel inside. Well, I just feel. Who cares? Your opinion and God's opinion are not on the same level. It's not the culture. It's not your feelings. Let me give you this one. And it's not the preacher. You know, you can find a preacher to say just about anything you want him to say. But it's not what a preacher says. It's what God says. Period. This is our standard. And church, we can praise God that we can have absolute confidence that no matter where we find ourselves and no matter why we ended up there, when we look to God's word, there will always be a God-honoring, righteous way that we can live. And so Paul here is going to be dealing with some difficulties and he's starting with relationships. You know, when you boil life down to its irreducible minimum, it is relationships. First and foremost, it's our relationship with God. And then it's our relationship with others. And when it comes to relationships, there are no more powerful or pertinent relationships than those of family and marriage. These are the relationships in which we can find our greatest joy and our deepest pain. These are the relationships that can, at the same time, solve problems and create problems in our life. These are the big issues that relate to the deepest parts of who we are. If we marry, who we marry, when we marry, this is the stuff that life is made of. And the reality is, especially when it comes to these things, sin in and around us can make these things way more complicated than God intended. But church, it doesn't have to be because we have God's word. And so what Paul is going to teach us is he's going to teach us how to honor God as we navigate the difficulties of our relationship status. Now, I'm going to remind us as we get into this this morning, what is Paul doing in this chapter? He is answering specific questions. He's not giving us a comprehensive theology. Everything God has to say on marriage and singleness and separation is not found in this chapter. Paul is answering specific questions, and that will help us as we navigate some of these truths. So we got a lot to cover this morning. If you're ready, if you're with me, would you say amen? All right. Verse number one. Here we go. Uh, Paul wrote this. Now concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, he said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So first of all, we're going to look this morning as Paul addressed the singles. As Paul addressed the singles. So here we have relationship status, single. You know what we're going to find as we look in God's word? That the single life is a serious matter. And that if God has placed you in a situation where you're single, it matters that you do it right. Evidently, one of the questions that this church had asked Paul was about those who were single in the church. You know, culturally speaking, at that time, unmarried people were often looked down upon. In fact, in the Jewish culture, some Jewish teachers listed specifically unmarried men as those who would never enter heaven. Because none are exempt from the command to be fruitful and multiply. 
And so some Jewish teachers at that time taught that unmarried men just did not make the cut for heaven. But that's not what God says. I love what Paul says here. He says, concerning the things you wrote of me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul starts here by declaring what? That it is a good thing. Now, when he says good, he doesn't mean like morally good. He just means it's a fine thing. It's a fair thing. It's an excellent thing. Uh, Not morally speaking, but practically speaking, to be single. Now, sometimes singleness is a temporary thing. Sometimes singleness is a permanent thing, but if singleness is where God has you, then it is a good thing. It is a fine thing. The word here to touch, it's a euphemism used in scripture for physical intimacy. Uh, The word has the idea not to touch as in like to poke, but it has the idea of uh, to set on fire, to ignite, like you would strike a match. And so what Paul is going to be teaching throughout this chapter, and we're going to get more on this next week, is that Paul is going to describe that that it it really is a fine and fair and excellent thing if, if God has you live the single life because there are some tremendous practical benefits that single people have that married people don't. And Paul is going to describe some practical freedom that comes with a life unburdened by responsibilities to the married life. If you jump further in this chapter to verse number 33, Paul gives this description. But he that is married careth for the things of, that are of the world, how he may please his wife. In other words, those of us who have a spouse, we have other people we have to consider. And I just can't get up and do whatever I want and go wherever I want and be whatever I want and spend whatever I want. Why? Because I have a responsibility to please her. And so those who God has placed in the single life, they have, they have benefits that married people don't. And Paul is going to delineate and describe that more next week but the bottom line is this the single life is a good life if that's where God has you and it is clear that Paul preferred it and even considered it a gift if you look at verse number seven of our passage this morning Paul says this he said I would I wish that all men were even as I myself now whether Paul was never married or Paul was a widower there's a lot of discussion about that but the one thing that we do know is at this point he was not married and Paul said honestly guys I wish everybody were like me because there are things that I get to do as an unmarried man that the married people can't do they're, they're, this is a gift it's a gift and like I said Paul is going to describe that more a bit next week But evidently, there was another aspect to this question, not just whether uh, singleness was acceptable, but evidently the other part of the question was whether or not there was any spiritual benefit or blessing to denying oneself physical intimacy and remaining single. Is it the holier option just not to get married at all? And the simple answer is no. It's not the holier option. Single and celibate, that state is no holier than the married state. It's not better or worse, it's just different. I'm going to point this out before we leave. Those who are single, for whatever reason, they are a valuable part of the local assembly. 
And church, I want to encourage you, get to know, get involved, and include everyone around you. Not just the people in the same status that you are in. You know, sometimes uh, the people we're most inclined to uh, get to know and show hospitality and love towards are the people who are just like us. Whether they're young, married with a family, whether they're uh, older and the kids are out of the house, whether they're single, whether they're whatever. But the reality is, church, we ought to engage and involve one another on more than just that. We ought to seek to engage and include everyone. And I love how Paul, and again, we'll look at it more next week, Paul pointed out that singles have the capacity to be some of the most impactful members of the ministry. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 32 says this. He said, but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried, he careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. In other words, those men and women uh, who are not married, they have the capacity to give an attention to the things of God that others can cannot. And I praise the Lord. You know, some of the biggest helpers in this ministry are men and women who are unmarried. And I praise the Lord for the men and women who selflessly, selflessly serve the things of God. And so as we consider our relationship status, I encourage you this morning, if you're single, Don't resent this time. Don't resist this time. Redeem this time for the glory of God. And so we see Paul, he deals first of all with the single life. But I want you to see he's going to move on from there. Look with me in verse number two. Nevertheless, Paul says, to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. And let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto her husband. And the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not a commandment. He said, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, Paul says, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. So Paul starts by addressing the singles, and now he's going to move on. He's going to address the spouses. So we see to the singles, he gives his message, and now he gives a message to the spouses. Single and celibate is good. And by the way, celibate or abstaining from all sexual activity is the only option for a single person. There's no grounds for a Christian who is single acting as if he or she is married. And single and celibate is a good thing. And if that is you, that is a gift of God to you. But Paul points out the reality here, most do not have that gift. Sometimes people get the wrong idea about what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that human hormones are the main reason for marriage. 
Paul is simply saying that the gift of celibacy is not the norm. The gift of marriage is. The gift of celibacy is wonderful if God's given it to you, but it's not the norm. We see that delineated in verses 7 through 9. He says, I wish everybody could be like me, but I get it. Not everybody has this gift. God gives to every man his proper gift. And so if you don't have that gift of single and celibate, what do you do? Verse number 9, marry. Go ahead and marry. It is the norm. Paul is not anti-marriage. We find when we look at the Bible that marriage is desirable. Marriage is necessary. Marriage is a practical thing. It is ordained by God. In Genesis 2.18, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Genesis 2, beginning in verse number 21, what do we see? And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made woman and brought her unto the man. So who officiated the first wedding? Who, church? God did. Marriage is God's idea. He ordained it. He designed it. He defines it. Marriage is necessary for the continuation of the human race. It's necessary for the welfare of the state. It's necessary for the well-being of children. And did you notice in verse number 2 it says, Let every man and let every woman, showing that it is really assumed that marriage is the regular, normal course of action for men and women. It is one of the first great foundational gifts that God gave us. He pronounced it very good. He even uses it as a picture of Christ and the church. So, we've dealt with relationship status single, but what if your relationship status is spouse? Hey, the single life is a serious thing, amen? So is the spousal life. And if God has called you to be a spouse, it is a serious thing. And so it matters that we do it right. If you're married this morning, turn to your spouse. I won't make you say good morning, neighbor. I won't make you do that. I want you to turn to your spouse. And I want you to say, honey. Well, come on, we got more married people than that. Honey. The Bible says... It's good if you can live the single life. But honey, I love you. There you go. Now again, as we look at this, in none of these instances, the single, the spouse, and even when we get to the next one, none of this is a comprehensive theology. What is Paul doing? Paul is answering questions. And so Paul answered a question about the legitimacy of the single life. He, he answered questions about whether there was any benefit to the single life. And, and apparently, evidently, there was some aspect of this church's questions that, that dealt with sex. And so Paul is going to answer their question, but as Paul deals with sex, what does he do? He deals with it within marriage because there is no other context for a Christian to exercise their sexuality in except for marriage. Paul has already decisively dealt with and declared that sexual sin, all 
sexual sin is incredibly destructive. You go back one chapter, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 18. Flee, run from fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication, that is sexual immorality, sinneth against his own body. In Proverbs, it likens uh, sexual immorality to, to taking a fire within your bosom. And can you take fire in your bosom and not be burned? No, you can't. Sexual sin is incredibly destructive. And so as Paul discusses sexuality with the church here at Corinth, he does it within the context of marriage. Let me point out a couple of things about the marriage relationship here. Paul points out first that there's a mutual responsibility. Did you notice verse number three? By the way, Paul's about to get all up in our business. The Bible says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto her husband. Here we find a mutual responsibility. In other words, biblically, we have the responsibility to care for one another's needs. Sex and sexuality is a serious thing. It's a beautiful tool to build with, but it's a terrible thing if it's used as a tool to manipulate or punish with. You know, when the Bible speaks of benevolence, it simply means kindness or goodwill. The idea of render means to give or to pay back. In other words, that as husbands and wives, there ought to be a reciprocal recognition of one another's needs, wishes, and rights. And by the way, this is true in all areas of marriage, not just the marriage bed. You go to Ephesians 5 and it talks about how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And husbands are to honor and respect their husbands. And and you look at the, 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 the mutual responsibility that we have to do what? To love and respect one another in mutual submission to the other and God. And biblically, you cannot get away from the reality that you as a spouse have a scriptural responsibility to care for the needs of your spouse. So we see a mutual responsibility. We find a mutual respect. Verse number four. The wife hath not power or authority of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, the husband hath not power or authority of his own body, but the wife. I'm telling you, Paul's getting all up in our business. In other words, you are not your own. By the way, this flies in the face of what culture teaches. Our culture is huge on this concept of body autonomy. My body, my choice. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, it ain't your body. If you're married... It ain't your body. If you look in the Bible, the Bible says we as believers, our body belongs to a couple of different people, and none of them are us. None of them's me. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Just one chapter earlier, verses uh, 20 and 21 or 19 and 20. He said, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Which you have of God. What's that say, church? And you're not your own. Verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Wherefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit. What is it, church? Which are 
God's. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. It's not your body. It's not your life. It's not your will. You belong to God. You belong to Him. He paid for you. By the way, He owns you twice over. He created you. And then He bought you back with His blood. But Paul, in this very next chapter, goes a little farther. Because he says, you don't just belong to the Lord. You belong to your spouse. Verse number four. The wife doesn't have that authority over her own body, but the husband and the husband, not the authority of his body, but the wife. What is this? This is a surrender of self in order to serve our spouse. One of the greatest lessons we could ever learn about marriage is that marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100%-100%. I'm all in for you, and I'm going to trust you're all in for me. But my all in doesn't depend on your all in. That's the only way to do it. That's the only way where you really know the full blessings. And the Bible says when we don't live this way, we are literally defrauding or robbing our spouse. Now let me pause and note here. What Paul is teaching is not a license to take advantage of your spouse. It's not a license to abuse your spouse emotionally, physically, sexually. It's not that at all. God hates that. That is wicked, wicked sin. But what Paul is teaching here is the positive. That it is our privilege to serve one another. And you know, you ever been married, there's some big adjustments when two become one. Before I was married, I got to pick my own bedtime. Before I was married, I got to pick my own snacks. She does a good job, by the way. I'm not saying, you know. Love you. But a lot changes when two become one. Boy, and if you're not careful, me, myself, and I will get in and mess it up real fast. It's not about me. It's about my privilege to serve my spouse in the love of God. Paul points out our mutual responsibility to care for one another's needs. Paul points out a mutual respect. Ye are not your own. I'm going to tell you, marriage is a beautiful thing when it functions on those principles. Marriage is a beautiful thing when it functions on those principles. But Paul not only gives us a a mutual responsibility and a mutual respect, he also calls us to mutual restraint. Verse number 5, it says, Defraud ye not one the other, except it be for consent with the time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So in other words, Paul calls us to a mutual restraint. In other words, there will be some times in married life, when, when specifically speaking about the marriage bed, that we will need to agree to abstain for certain reasons, such as to seek the Lord. But abstinence from the marriage relationship, Paul is very clear, the Holy Spirit is very clear, should be mutual and seasonal. Understanding there are just some times where physical, emotional, or spiritual things are, are taking place, and so we agree together for a period of abstinence. 
But even then, Paul says, and come together again, that Satan tempts you not. So it is seasonal. Otherwise, what do we do? We open ourselves and our spouse to temptation. Because, hey, God knows our frame. Amen? But so does the devil. You say this morning, you know, you're a spouse. And you say, preacher, all that's well and good. But boy, that's not where I'm at and I don't know how to get there. How do we get that and keep that? Let me give you a couple of thoughts here very briefly. How do you get it and keep it? Number one, it's going to require some humility. You're going to have to humble yourself. Because you're going to have to come to the relationship understanding it's not about me getting my needs met. It's my responsibility is to meet their needs, to love them, to support them, to strengthen them. And so it's going to require some humility. Number two, it's going to require some honesty. You know what I thought? I thought when I got married that there would never be anything hard to talk about ever again. You know what I found? Is that after I got married, some things got harder to talk about. And so it's going to require some honesty, husbands and wives. It's going to require some humility. It's going to require some honesty. It's going to require some hearing. In other words, when my spouse speaks, I need to not be listening for how I'm going to answer and rebut them. I need to be listening, hearing what they're actually saying. So it's going to require some humility. It's going to require some honesty. It's going to require some hearing, and it's going to require some honoring. I want to honor the husband or wife God has given me. If my heart is about me, then we're going to struggle. But if my heart is to honor the spouse God has given me, then we're on the right path. Humility, honesty, hearing, honoring. And husbands and wives, I encourage you to learn to talk about and deal with the hard things. Learn to talk about and deal with the hard things now because they keep you from suffering harder things later. Relationship status doesn't have to be complicated. We see God's word to the single. We've seen God's word to the spouses. And finally this morning, we're going to see God's word to the separated. Look with me at verse number 10. Paul wrote this, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. He said, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For, if, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace." For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And so we've seen God's word to the single. We've seen God's word to those who are spouses. And now we're going to see God's word to those who are separated. So here we have the relationship status, those that are separated. We come back to where we started at the beginning and we see the difficulty that sin interjects into our existence. You know, God's intention for marriage is clear. 
one man, one woman, one lifetime. Till death do we part is not just some nicety that we say. We say it because we recognize it's God's intention according to God's word. The Bible is clear. God hates divorce. We see it in Malachi 2.16. God hates what it does. God hates the pain and destruction it brings. I want to be careful because sometimes people will use this as a, as a bludgeon and it doesn't, is not, shouldn't be used that way. God does hate divorce, but God does not hate divorced people. If you're divorced, you're, you're not a second-tier family member in the house of God. You're not that uncle that, you know, we don't, I mean, he's here, but we don't really talk about. That's not the case. There are no second-tier family members in the household of God. Amen. And I want you to be encouraged that no matter where you find yourself or why you find yourself there, there is always a God-honoring, righteous way to live and opportunities to serve him. And so when we look at this section, Paul is going to be dealing with several scenarios, again, in responses to questions that they have offered. And I want to address a point that's often confused. If you look at verse number 10, Paul says this, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. In verse number 12, he says this, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now what is Paul saying here? Paul is not saying that he is just giving his own opinion. But what Paul is saying is that he is building on what Jesus has taught. In verses 10 and 11, Paul is addressing something that the Lord specifically talked about in his ministry. Paul, Jesus talked about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so Jesus already addressed that. So in verse number 10, Paul says, look, I'm going to command, but look, these are the words of the Lord himself. When we get to verse number 12 and onward, what do we find? Paul is dealing with something that didn't exist when Jesus was on earth. When Jesus was on earth, we didn't have a church where one member of the family could get saved. And now all of a sudden you have a saved member and an unsaved member. And so Paul is not saying, well, guys, I'm just going to give my own opinion here. No, Paul is saying, look, I recognize that Jesus did not speak on this, but this is what, this is what we do as believers And so Paul's not giving his opinion. Paul's not undermining the Lord. Paul is not doing any of that. All of this is Holy Spirit inspired. How do you know that? Well, at the end of the day, it's in the book, amen? And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we're going to deal with a couple of scenarios. Scenario 1, verses 10 and 11, what, what do we do when Christians separate or divorce? Again, Paul says, In his command, it's not I but the Lord, because the Lord has already dealt with this. Paul is not overriding what Jesus taught. He's not contradicting what Jesus taught. He's not replacing what Jesus taught. He is giving us exactly what Jesus taught. You go to Matthew 19, beginning in verse number 3, the Bible says this. Matthew chapter 19, And the Pharisees came unto him, Jesus tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause and he answered and said of them have you not read in other words he said guys don't you read the bible don't you read the bible that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said for this cause shall a man 
leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain. They're not two. They are one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so we see here that the question was brought to Jesus about divorce. Understand the context that some in Jesus' day treated divorce very casually. When they said for every cause, there were certain Jewish teachers that, that, that said that, that literally if your wife burnt dinner, that was grounds for divorce. If your wife wore her hair down in public, that was grounds for divorce. Just about any reason you could think of. Divorce. Divorce, 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 divorce. But what do we find in the teaching of Jesus? That Jesus unequivocally rejected this. And so we see here, as Paul reflects the teachings of Jesus, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, that if Christians separate that they are to reconcile or remain unmarried. You know what that does? That pushes us to figure it out, to work it out. You know what often is the case is it's not so much incompatibility that causes irreconcilable differences, but immaturity. And sometimes if we just grow up, we'd find we can figure it out. But the question is asked, didn't Jesus allow for divorce? In that context, Matthew 19 and verse number 9, Jesus says this. Matthew 19, verse number 9, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife. Jesus does say here, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And so in Matthew 19, 9, again in this context, uh, we do, don't have time to unpack it all today. We do see that, that Jesus does seem to give an allowance for divorce, but it was clear that this was only for sexual immorality. Now, this is not specifically referenced here, but the words of Jesus haven't changed. And so there does in Scripture uh, seem to be that allowance for divorce in cases of sexual immorality. But even then for believers, what do we find in, in the context of Scripture? That if possible, repentance and reconciliation should be pursued, if possible. But if not possible, the principle from the words of Jesus do remain. And people have asked me, Well, does that mean if my spouse commits immorality and they divorce, does that mean that I am free to marry again? And I will give you my understanding as pastor, according to Matthew 19 and verse number 9, I do believe that the implication from the teaching of Jesus is that if the marriage is broken by sexual immorality, that the innocent spouse is free to marry again. That seems to be Jesus' obvious, uh, if you could put Matthew 19, 9 on the screen, that seems to be what Jesus is saying there. But what do we find? God's intention for believers is clear. That God desires for us to be one and to work it out. So we have the concept of separated Christians. 
Paul's going to move on to another scenario, scenario two, when a Christian finds themselves married to an unbeliever. Now, how does that happen? Well, people get saved, amen? And unless you were both saved when you got married, if one of you gets saved, now we have a Christian married to a non-Christian. And that creates issues. Why does that create issues, preacher? Well, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, it creates an issue because the saved person is no longer the same person that their spouse married. Hey, they're a new creature. Jesus changes everything. So it creates issues, number one, because that person is no longer the same person that they originally married. It creates issues, number two, because the saved person has now invited someone else into the home. And Jesus changes everything. And so what do we do? Well, the Bible is very clear. If the unsaved spouse wants to stay, then stay. Again, Paul is not comprehensive here. He's not dealing with matters of abuse and other things. But here he's dealing with general principles. If the unsaved spouse wants to stay, then stay. Why? Because he delineates you as a child of God are a unique, you are a unique blessing to the home. As the old country preacher put it, you as a Christian, you live under the spout where the blessings flow out, right? And so if you dwell there, then everybody around you gets the, uh, gets the sprinkles, right? And so your presence is a unique blessing to that home. Think of Joseph and Potiphar's house. God blessed Potiphar's house. Why? Because Joseph was there. He also talks about how you're a unique blessing to both your unsaved spouse and your children. When it talks about the unsaved spouse being sanctified, and really when he uses the word holy there for children, it's the same word. It has the idea of being sanctified, being set apart. The Bible does not teach that I can save an unbelieving spouse. They have to make that decision for themselves. But what the Bible does teach, the word sanctified simply means to be set apart. And so when somebody gets saved and Jesus is brought into the home, everybody else in that home is set apart in a special way for a special exposure to the gospel. And the principle is clear. God may well use you to help lead them to salvation. And so if the unsaved spouse wants to stay, then stay. If the unsaved spouse doesn't want to stay, the Bible says let them leave. And in that case, in verse 15, Paul says a brother or sister is not under bondage in those cases. In other words, if they leave, you are free. And I do believe the implication here is that if this is the case, one is free to remarry. Why? Because God hath called us to peace. Now I understand as Paul goes through these scenarios, he might not have dealt with your scenario. Again, this is not a comprehensive theology in this one chapter, but we do have a complete revelation in this book. And if Paul didn't address your scenario and you have questions, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Come talk to me and let's look at God's word together about what God's word says about where you are. So we've talked about what? We've talked about God's word to the single. We've talked about God's word to spouses. We've talked about God's word to the separated. So what do we do with all of this, preacher? What do we do? You know, it's important for us to note that culture has cheapened all of this. If you're single, culture says party life, no responsibilities, go wild while you can. 
If you're married, the culture says, hey, try it out. Do your best. Eh, see what happens. If you're separated or divorced, the culture says, ah, no big deal. On to the next. Culture has cheapened all of this. But the reality is, no matter where you find yourself today, we must understand the significance and seriousness of our present state. And whatever your state, commit yourself to walk uprightly before God. Before we close this morning, I want to mention this to the unsaved, to those who've never put their faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, the essence of life is relationships. The essence of eternal life is relationship. You need a personal relationship with God. And that is only possible through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. You're not a Christian because you were baptized. You're not a Christian because you have an affinity for religious things. You're not a Christian because you had some sort of feeling one day. You're not a Christian because grandma was. You're not a Christian because you read the Bible. You're not a Christian because you come to church. None of that makes you a Christian. What makes me a Christian, what makes me a child of God is when I recognize that my sin has separated me from God. But that God loves me so much that since I couldn't get to him, he came to me. And he sent his son. When I recognize that the consequence, the wage of my sin is death. But God loves me so much that he died on an old rugged cross. He took my death that I might have access to his life. And what makes me a Christian is when I come to the place where I repent, where I turn from my sin and I turn to the Lord Jesus and I put my faith and trust in him and what he has done. If you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with God, I beg you, in just a moment we're going to have a time of invitation. Come talk to me. Be sure where you stand with God before you stand before him. The essence of life is relationship. And every one of us need a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ to the singles this morning, to the never married, to the widowed, to the divorced, I want to encourage you, redeem the time. Whatever and why ever your state, ask God to help you make the most of where he has led you and placed you. Ask God to give you wisdom. Ask God to use you. Paul says it's a good thing. It's a good thing. To the spouses this morning, cherish what and who God has given you. Never stop growing together. Never stop growing in grace. I want to encourage husbands and wives this morning, find a place, even if it's standing there in the pew, grab each other's hands, and let's take some time tonight, this morning to thank God for one another, to pray for one another, for our marriages, for our homes. Pray for humility and honesty and hearing and honoring. Pray, pray for all of that. And I'm going to tell you this morning, whatever your relationship status, you know the thing that makes it most complicated? You know the greatest threat we face? There seems to be no end to the threats out there that want to twist and pervert what God has given us. But no matter what your relationship status, here's the thing. The thing that makes it most complicated, the greatest threat you face is this. It's not a threat from the outside world, and it's not even a threat from the other person in the relationship. The greatest threat we face, the most complicating factor we face is our own selfish heart. The unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. When Christ is on the throne, 
when his word is our standard. Whatever your relationship status is, 